morning, everybody. Nice to see you all on this beautiful day. It's nice to have like a little bit of fall, isn't it? Where you got sunny, but it's a little cool in the air. It's not freezing cold. It's not really hot. It's great. So we'll take it this week. Might be all we get. So enjoy. Um, I'm sorry I missed you all last week. I realize now, as I was preparing for today, that I gave Ken all the good stuff, and I got all the theology. And so I am so sorry I missed the feeding of the 5,000 and walking on water. It's such a good passage. Um, and so I was super tempted to just go back and do that again and skip chapter 6 altogether. Um, but I figured eternal life and bread from heaven and all that sort of stuff is important. So I'm going to give it my best shot. <laughs> this chapter is why I told you I was scared to teach John. So I just want you to open up your heart, be filled with grace. Um, I will do my best. Thank you so much. Um, so a quick note, we are not going to have class next week because it is Thanksgiving holiday. I hope you all will have a good Thanksgiving. I want you to know that we are, my family, we are all going up to New York for Thanksgiving. And the reason I'm telling you that is because we're going to be in the Macy's Parade on Santa's float. So look for us. I know, isn't that so fun? I can't wait. I promise you, this is like top 10 moments of my entire life. I cannot wait. And when we told our kids that we were doing this and they said, are we going to have to dress in stupid costumes? I said, yes, yes. Um, and they were mortified. And so watching them get dressed in these dumb costumes with the face paint and everything they don't want is going to be the best gift I get this season. I can't wait. Um, so if the parade is part of your tradition, look for me. I'm sorry? Oh, Santa's float. Oh yes, oh yes, hello. I'm gonna wait for four hours. It's my sweet spot, I can't wait. All right, one more note. I know. How, one of my best friends from college is the creative director at Macy's, and so he organizes the parade, and I said, can we come? And so I figured we would just be a clown, you know, just somewhere in the parade or with a band or something like that. And then last week we found out we're going to be on Santa's float, so he hooked us up. Oh yeah. Um, I can't wait. <laughs> okay, one more note. I know, am I so happy. Um, one more note is that we're having trouble with our podcast, and so if you're listening to this, um, or watching this, or if podcasts are one of the ways that you kind of connect with Bible study, um, know that we're trying to figure out why it's taking, we're having trouble uploading episodes. I think we're a couple weeks behind. Um, and so we're going to fix this, um, but just sorry that that's a trouble. Um, lastly, just ask questions, maybe not hard questions today, um, and we will, we will get to it. Let's have a prayer and we'll get started. The Lord be with you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the gift of this life, and especially as we watch so many people struggling around the world, we give you thanks for keeping us safe. May that safety be what inspires us to do what we can to help meet the needs of our neighbors, especially those who are most vulnerable. May our gratitude this week and into this new Advent season help to buoy us, remind us of all the good things in our lives, and help us to share the gifts that we've been given. 
Today we hold in our hearts and minds those we love, especially those who need your healing touch the most, and those who may be nearing the end of their life. May they feel our prayers and your presence. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so today we're going to have four parts of this lesson, even though we are remaining all in chapter six. Chapter six is long and dense and it's got lots of stuff. It's a whole bunch of Jesus talking and the very trulies and all of that stuff. So we're going to try and unpack this as best we can. Four parts. First is bread from heaven. Then we're going to talk about being chosen. Then we're going to talk about eating and drinking. And then number four is the division among Jesus' followers. So this chapter moves quickly, and every dozen or so verses is very chunky. And so, like I said, there, I just, my caveat for this entire day is we could spend books, volumes, days talking about chapter six from countless different angles. And so I'm going to try and walk one particular path. Ask questions, though. If you've always wondered a thing or there's a term that has never made sense to you or maybe you've come from a different tradition and there was a different approach to the way of doing Christianity, that is all very helpful. And so feel free to ask. I am picking one particular path when there are dozens of very valid ways we could go about this chapter. We just, you know, I've got one hour. And so we're going to do our best. Let's start with one question that we got from a couple weeks ago that I actually think is quite interesting, and I'll try to be brief. The question, it was a nice, long, thoughtful question, but it basically reduced down to when Jesus goes to the man, when Jesus finds the man in the temple that he healed um, by the pool, he says, see, you've been made well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. That was back in chapter five. And so the question essentially is, was the guy paralyzed because some, he had done something wrong? Had he sinned? Was it punishment? Could he do something bad? And then perhaps the healing goes away. It's all a very good question. What I want us to remember as we go through the Gospel of John is that John was the last gospel written chronologically. And John is trying to make sense of who Jesus is. The synoptic gospels tend to tell a simpler story. John's trying to unpack what it means for Jesus of Nazareth, the historic person, to actually be God's son or the Christ or the Messiah. The synoptic gospels, Mark, Matthew, and Luke, don't wrestle so much with that idea, which seems odd to say because it seems like all of them would be wrestling with that idea, but not quite. Mark, Matthew, and Luke were much more interested in telling what might be considered a, a historic story, almost biographical in a sense. They were focused more on where Jesus went, what he said, who he taught, what he did. John, although certainly interested in the historic nature of Jesus of Nazareth, almost assumes in a way, or I think what many scholars think, is that John seems to assume we know the history as if John assumes we have read or heard the other Gospels. And so John almost leaps from there. That's why we don't get a baptism story in John. We don't get, I'll say this a little bit later when we're talking about eating and drinking, we don't get a Last Supper story in John. There are these moments where 
you kind of think John would find them important, and John just doesn't include them, most scholars think John knows these other stories exist in the other Gospels. And so rather than taking up real estate, the literal uh, space on the scrolls that were finite, John just kind of skips over that and tries to get to some deeper theological meaning. So when Jesus heals, John's trying to figure out and wrestle with a very common idea that people suffered from physical ailments, blindness, lameness, paralysis, fever, all that stuff, because they did something wrong. John does not seem to believe truly that people were punished with disease because they sinned. But John is still a product of his time. And so there are moments like this where that kind of comes out. Because John doesn't really do that elsewhere in the gospel, I think it's too much to say that John thought if this man who was healed went off and sinned, he would be paralyzed again. As if Jesus' healing is only good so long as the person doesn't sin. Not quite. But John does reveal that there is an idea that somehow sinning is going to be punished. Without spending too much more time on this, it's an interesting note for us. As you go between Bible studies, I hope you're rolling around some of these ideas in your own life. I certainly know, and you all know that I was raised Catholic, so, you know, the guilt is real. Um, I certainly know that I can, at times, find myself accidentally or almost unintentionally thinking, oh man, I'm going to get in trouble for that. Or if I don't go make amends, something bad's going to happen. Or I think I've told this story here before, but I do not like flying. And every time I get on a plane, I wait for the right moment as if it matters. I do. I, we get on the plane and everyone's bumping and throwing their bags around and everything. And I wait until we are taxiing. And I kind of try to time it so that I say a prayer right before we take off, as if the closer I get to take off, the better the prayer is going to be. Um, and I do always say, like, please just don't die. I mean, you know, it's, it is the stupidest prayer that I ever say. And I say it every single time because it just makes me feel better. And I know that's not how it works, but I do it anyway. And so I think that for all of us, we've got a little bit of that... I don't know what you, if you call it superstition or something. And it's important that we try to wrestle with the way in which we might treat God too superstitiously. I mean, none of us are perfect. I'm going to keep saying that prayer every time I get on a plane. I know that's not how it works. Um, and I know that's immature and that's my one moment of weakness. And so I accept it. Um, but I do think all of us have those moments where we kind of accidentally think we might get struck down. That's not how it works. But that is the way that people understood God, particularly in the Old Testament. And so we see these moments in the New Testament where that stuff kind of comes out. And I think we can check it, check those moments with the broader arc of the gospel. So that's probably good enough for that. Okay, let's jump in with bread from heaven. Chapter 6, verse 25 is where we're going to start today. Now, it is important to understand the context here 
before we get into all of Jesus's heavy teachings, although the walking on the water is quite incredible, that's not what most people saw. The crowds saw Jesus feed them. And so just before this, Jesus has gathered a massive number of people and he's doing his big teaching and the people do not have food and Jesus feeds them. At this time, Jesus feeding people would have been incredible. People were very food insecure. Most people may go a day or two without eating regularly. And so the idea that they would leave, go listen to a teacher, and spend a few days not really eating much, that would have kind of just been normal. For them to have gone out, not had any food to take with them, and then been given the food would have been absolutely stunning. And we see at the very end of that, that they want to make Jesus their king. I mean, we get that one weird verse where they're like, they're going to force Jesus to be their king. It's not because of Jesus's capacity to raise up an army or to overthrow an economy. It is simply that Jesus seemed to be able to feed them. I mean, it was, we think miracle food from nothing, but for them, it was so much more significant because food itself was not a guarantee. Like we get all the food we want, more food than we need. For them, food was like magic. And so there's a real important idea here that the crowd is now coming at Jesus with a lot of intensity because he has done something that they never expected that he would do. The physical representation of Jesus as someone very special is now resonating in a powerful way with the people and they want more of that. That's the context and the setup for what happens next in chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 25. Let's read a little bit. When they, the crowd, found Jesus on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, Very truly I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For it is on him that God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to perform the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, What sign are you going to give us then, so that we may see it and believe you, as if they haven't just seen something? What work are you performing? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness as it had written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, Very truly, I tell you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And we'll stop there. We have already heard this kind of language from Jesus. Remember the woman at the well in Samaria and the like. Jesus is leaning into this idea that he represents something that is not physical. There is a very spiritual, divine way in which Jesus is representing this physical idea of bread and water. 
that would meet people's hunger and thirst. That kind of idea is not brand new in this passage, but Jesus is beginning to unpack, I say Jesus, John, as he's telling the story of Jesus, is beginning to unpack the idea of the signs. So we'll start with, let's not be judgy with the people who want more food. It's totally understandable. We cannot blame them for wanting to follow after the guy who just fed them because I think for us, we would probably do the same thing. But Jesus chastises them in a way that I think is a little intense. Jesus kind of pivots really hard to say, you just want some more food. You're totally missing the point. It's a little unfair. He literally just fed them. And so Jesus, though, points out that what matters most is not what Jesus can do physically for the people. What matters most is actually who Jesus is. And we'll unpack that in a few different ways. If we look back at what Jesus says about the sign, what Jesus says is, you are looking for me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill. So we know John, in this first section of the gospel, points to multiple signs. The signs are like literal road signs. Um, in our commentary, or in one of the commentaries I read, talked about there was a little village that decided it was going to make their signs look really nice. Any of you familiar with Germantown near Memphis? Um, it's, a, it's a suburb of Memphis, and they had a standard where every sign, whether it was on a building or a road sign or a, a school sign, everything had to be uniform. Everything was super bland and beige and plain and non-offensive and uninteresting. Um, but they thought it was super cool. So all of the signs that were supposed to point to something else actually became the focus of the people who lived there. So if someone put out a sign, literally sign, that did not conform to the way they thought the sign should look, the sign itself became the problem. In a sense, what Jesus is saying here is, you're looking at the sign itself, but you're not looking at what the sign is supposed to point to. Signs are not the point. Signs help us to see the thing that the sign is pointing us to. It's like going on a hike and you see an arrow and you stop. That's not what the arrow means. You're not supposed to look at the arrow. You're supposed to go the direction the arrow points in order to have the experience the arrow is pointing you toward. Jesus is trying to lift up here that the signs themselves are not the point. The signs are meant for the people to see what is behind the sign, what the sign is pointing to. In churches, this is the way we describe things like icons. If you ever heard anyone describe an icon, icons are meant to be windows that point us toward the divine nature of God. Same kind of thing with stained glass windows. Stained glass is not really the point. Stained glass is meant to activate and interest us in a way that then points us to God. The reason churches are built with vaulted ceilings is not because we need more space over our head. It's because when you walk into a church and you look up, it's actually meant to pull your consciousness up toward God. Not that God's up in the sky, but physically, it's trying to draw a response out of you that is somehow different than all the rest of our lives. 
in the world. These signs matter. And Jesus begins this whole big dense section by saying, you're focusing on the wrong thing. Don't look at the sign. Look at what the sign is pointing to. This is hard for us. I do not want to gloss over this too easily. It's kind of easy for us 2,000 years later to say, duh, of course that's what Jesus meant. But that's a little unfair because we today understand that we focus on meeting our own needs. Every one of us, most of the time, focus on meeting whatever needs we have. If we're hungry, then we go get food. So we're naturally attracted to whoever can provide us with food. If we're worried about our health, we naturally get attracted to the people who promise to heal us. If we're scared about the state of the world around us, then we're naturally attracted to whoever says they can save us and keep us safe and keep the bad people away from us. And if we're insecure about who we are, we naturally go off and we buy stuff or we hoard assets or we waste our resources on whatever the world tells us is going to meet our needs and make us feel better about ourselves. We are human. We get exactly what is happening with this crowd. We may not follow after a guy who's giving us old fish out of a basket, because that's gross. But in our own way, we understand what it's like to chase after the stuff that we think we need, the stuff we definitely want. What John is telling us here is critically important for us in our own discipleship. Yes, it's good to understand what's happening in the story, but this is one of those moments where the story should absolutely cut us to the core. Because this kind of challenge about who we are as human people totally transcends time. Today, 2,000 years ago, 2,000 years before that, we're still human. In all of the ways that we still have those human desires, human tendencies, that human messiness, we might have made it look a whole lot cleaner and more fashionable, but I'm going to tell you what, fundamentally, it is the same stuff. And every one of us wrestles with this and struggles with this. It's what we worry about, I promise you. If you think about the things that cause you anxiety and stress and worry, almost all, if not all, of the things that worry you are things that Jesus is saying in this little moment are not the point. And we cannot help how we feel. Feelings just happen. But we can, through prayer and discipline and thinking and acting, try to shift our perspectives over time. And so do not feel guilty about all the ways in which you focus on the wrong stuff, because it's just, we all do it. But instead, realize that Jesus is actually inviting us into something more, and what Jesus is inviting us into is something that fills the deep hunger inside of us. We all have that hole in us, and we try to fill it whether we fill it with the food or the clothes or the car or the authority or the money or whatever, it's never going to satisfy and fill the hole in us. What Jesus is offering is not some good idea. Jesus is offering himself. What we have the risk of doing is focusing too much on what Jesus teaches. 
rather than focusing on Jesus. That's our challenge. It's their challenge 2,000 years ago. It's our challenge today. We have been given Jesus, not as ideas, not as good words, not as fancy stories. Jesus himself. And that's who actually fills the hole inside us. Come on, that's good stuff. Okay. <laughs> Questions? There is nothing more tangible than that today. I'm just telling you. These are not the stories that are tangible. These are all the theological ideas that you will probably be left with going, huh. I mean, as I was preparing these notes, I would get to the end of one section and kind of go, I mean, it's, it's heavy stuff. It is super challenging. And any one of these sections we could spend weeks on. We just have to keep moving. Questions? Yes. Yeah, I believe you. I'm confused when you say not Jesus' lessons and stories and all that, but Jesus is something. What is that? Yeah. Okay, so uncertain, when I say it's not Jesus' teachings, it's Jesus himself. Yeah? Thanks a lot. Um, yeah. In the natural, in the progression of Christian thought, that took about 400 years. Um, the first 400 years, the first four centuries, is really where the bulk of the fundamental ideas of Christianity were developed. People wrestled with how to understand Jesus. And so we see from Mark to Matthew to Luke to John a progression in just a few decades. That continued for the next couple centuries. For John, Jesus is the physical manifestation of a divine reality that is meant to complete us. And that completing of us is actually defined as full relationship with God that gives us eternal life. So that's kind of the summary. It is not intellectual assent. And what's dangerous for us is that Jesus calls us into a way of being, into an actual way of life that we do not wish for. And so instead of doing the things that Jesus said to do, we would prefer to think about the things that Jesus thought about. And so put kind of specifically, we love to talk about the parables as if there's a moral to the story. And that's all nice and fine, and it, it can be part of a process, but if it doesn't actually impact the way we live, it's not doing anything. And so we can think about Jesus. Jesus is not fundamentally a philosopher. It is okay to say Jesus is a philosopher as a means of getting to the actual ultimate end. Because of course he is. Jesus is a philosopher. He's a teacher. He's a healer. He, you can say all those things. That's not a problem. But all of those little touchstones are in a sense the signs that point you down the path to what is ultimately 
Jesus's point and purpose. And that is that we change who we are and how we act to depend on him. And it is in that dependence on Christ alone that we actually let go of the worldly ways in which we, in our human condition, fall short. Jesus is that last bit of the connector that brings us into wholeness with God, and it's that wholeness that is eternal life. Okay. Crystal clear, right? Yeah. (laughs) Put another way, and you've heard me say this, We can make Christianity very complicated. And I had a professor once say it, and it's always stuck with me, that theology is trying to make something simple complicated so we don't actually have to do it. (laughs) So what Jesus said to do is not hard. This is not hard. Jesus said, love God, love your neighbor, love yourself, give everything away. That's what Jesus said. And no matter how many people try to make Jesus a capitalist, he's not. So you want to like throw your slings and arrows at socialism. Sorry, there he is. He's the socialist. And so I'm not meaning for you to get off on something political, but let's just, he is what he is, who he is. We don't, we are not perfect and our imperfection should not cause us a lot of shame but we also should be very careful not to hide behind our imperfection. It's a little easy for us to say, well, we're just human. I can't do all of that, so I don't have to do most of that, and that's really okay, Jesus will forgive me. That's a problem. And I think that part of what we do as a community is we gently and lovingly don't let each other off the hook. There is a super fine line between holding people accountable and shaming people. We do not wish to shame. That is not what we do. We do not exclude. We do not judge. That's not us. But we do have to hold one another accountable or else none of us are improving ourselves. If all we do is just put on some nice clothes, come at our convenience, say some prayers and sing some songs and go away feeling good, that's not Christianity. That's a club. We just had, no, I'm sorry, I'll forget that. We, what we do, and this is especially challenging for traditional liturgical groups like Episcopalians, because we can almost innocently set up processes and habits and routines that are meant to help us get better. And then we can make those the point of Christianity. And in a very real way, it's the same issue with when Jesus says you're missing the signs and you're looking for something else. Things like our worship can become the point of being Christian. No, it's not. And it's never meant to be that way. It is meant to be what helps us slowly get down the road, take another step, make another improvement, better ourselves a little bit. If we're not actually bettering ourselves week by week by week, we're kind of not doing the thing that Jesus called us into. It does not mean that we only progress. We will 
always slide back. There are crisis points in our lives that just shake us to our core and we slide back. But hopefully it's, you know, two steps forward, one step back kind of stuff. Like over time, we are actually getting better. Part of what we are trying to do here, so if you don't go to St. Michael, you just pause for a moment. Part of what we do at St. Michael is we really try to push on people to commit and invest and go deeper, even if it's in small incremental ways. Because if you're not actually doing a little bit more each week, each month, each year, what are you doing? You're staying stagnant. You're, and, at, and maybe you're sliding backwards. And all of this cascades to a place where we can get frustrated. At the end of chapter six, a bunch of people who've been following Jesus for a minute leave. Because what he's saying is hard. And people don't like to hear the hard stuff. People don't actually be like, people don't like to be told what they don't want to hear. And so it's easy if we feel that push that becomes a little too challenging for us to throw up our hands and say, I don't like it. Well, when you don't like a thing, when you get upset about something, when you feel like someone's being a little too pushy in a community like a church, before you go getting mad, at least try to think about whether the pushiness can actually be good for you. Because none of us are done. And if you think you're done, again, you miss the point. <sighs> I don't have time for all this. Um, <laughs> okay. Um, the problem with this is that it's, it's preachy. Like, I feel preachy. It's really hard to resist. This is, this is everything we try to preach. Um, I mean, this is it. And so I'm trying to stay out of the pulpit and stay, try to like actually walk through. Because I really want you to know what is said. I want you to know what is here. Because John is not the only authority on Jesus. We need to understand how John thinks through Jesus and hold all of that next to everyone else who's writing about Jesus, whether in the Gospels or the Epistles or the others, so that we can try and create a nice, big, three-dimensional understanding of what following is meant to be. So, so to that end, any other questions, follow-ups for that? This is good stuff. I, I should not joke. This is important. We can spend all the time on this, and we will just make it up later. So, because this really is, this is, this is the stuff. This is the, this is the meat on the bone that if we do not really wrestle with, we just skim the rock across the surface. What else? Thoughts, questions, lack of clarity. Lack of clarity. <laughs> okay. All right, so I'm going to, let's go to section two. <laughs> okay, I'm not going to do what I was going to do because we have to, I'm going to try and maximize the time. If you look at verse 45, Chapter 6, verse 45. Let's read just a few verses, and then I'll tell you in kind of one sentence, and then we're going to move on. Verse 45. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard 
and I'm sorry, I should have said, this is Jesus talking. Jesus is talking almost the entire way through this chapter. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from the God. He has seen the Father. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes has eternal life. Okay, so let's just, we're going to take section two and say that God's will is in the world. We, in a sense, are the ones God comes after. And it is God's will for us that we turn toward God. That's it. Okay, section two, over. Um, <laughs> there is a... I will say I will say that again because I think it is important. There are far too many Christian groups that have created a system of Christianity that relies principally on a human choice of God. On the surface, it's not a bad idea, but what we see in John is much more the sense that God chooses us and then we reciprocate. I think that is a much more faithful understanding of what we see across the entire New Testament. That's what grace actually is. Our choice of God is not some litmus test that is dependent on us alone. God's actually coming after us. We cannot, in our humanity, actually make the choice of God directly. However, we can choose to reciprocate God's coming after us. And that's essentially what this little middle section is talking about. That it is not our human condition or our power, or our authority to make that choice. God chooses us first. God loves us first. It's because God loves us that we can love other people. And it's because God loves us that we can reciprocate God's love back. There you go. Section three. We're going to talk about eating and drinking. My favorite subject. Chapter six, verse 48. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever eats me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like that which your ancestors ate, and they died. But the one who eats this bread will live forever. 
Let's stop there. The loopiness of this language makes it very hard to follow. Jesus, John needs a real editor. So part of what is happening in this section is a real unpacking of some critical Jewish ideas. And so part of what we are trying to get at in this section is where the eat the flesh, drink the blood kind of stuff is anchored. And it is anchored in two different places. The eat the flesh bit is anchored back with Moses in Exodus. And the drink the blood bit is anchored back with David in 2 Samuel. Look at that. We have to know about Moses and we have to know about David in order to understand the way in which John understands Jesus. And so lucky for us, we spent the last two years studying Moses and David. So I'm going to give us a nice little summary. Be, and if this is new for you, you've got dozens of hours of Bible study you can go listen to. Okay, so back Exodus chapter 16. You don't need to do anything, but just listen. In Exodus chapter 16, a story we are all familiar with, the whole congregation of the Israelites set out from Elam, and Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt. The whole congregation of the Israelites complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness, and the Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the flesh pots and ate our fill of bread, for you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, I am going to rain bread from heaven for you, and each day the people shall go out and gather enough for that day. We should all be familiar with the idea of manna from heaven. When the Israelites went out from Egypt into the wilderness, they were hungry and they grumbled and they complained, and then God provided manna every day, except on the sixth day, twice as much, so they didn't have to collect on the seventh day. And that bread, that manna, sustained them all the way through the wilderness. It is very central to who the Jewish people are to understand that God provides because God provided manna from heaven. Now let's fast forward to 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 13. David is at the very end of his life and they're recounting stories of David's life with his comrades and chapter 2 Samuel 23, 13 says, Towards the beginning of the harvest, three of the thirty chiefs went down to join David at the cave of Adullam, while a band of Philistines was encamped at the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. And David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Then the three warriors broke the camp of the Philistines, drew water from the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate, and brought it to David. But he would not drink of it. He poured it out onto the ground, for he said, The Lord forbids that I should do this. Can I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore he would not drink it. In this passage, David is set against the Philistines. David is essentially in a defensive position because the Philistines have the offensive advantage and David is longing to get back to Bethlehem. David is not physically needing water. David is yearning to be back home where he belongs. 
and his men misunderstand. And so they sneak out, they break through the lines, they get some water from this well in Bethlehem, and they bring it back to David. And David says, what are you doing? I don't need actual water, nor would I drink this water as if I were back home when my men are out there risking their lives to keep us safe. And so he poured it out on the ground. It might seem weird, but when David says, can I drink the blood of the men who went to risk their lives? When he's really saying, he's not literally talking about blood. He's talking about, can I profit from lives put at risk on my behalf? That's what David's really talking about. And so you've got this one idea of God providing the food to eat in the wilderness, but the people still died. And then you've got this idea of David resisting benefiting from the risk that other people put their lives so that he pours the water out. In both instances, we are hearing blood, water. We get this flesh, blood kind of idea. I'm sorry, bread and water, and then flesh and blood ideas that collapse down into this section of John where Jesus is hearkening back to the way in which the Jews understood manna and what the Jews recognized of David as not taking advantage of the risk other people go into. Okay, that is complicated, but where this comes to is that Jesus creates an idea in which God is providing something new. Yes, it is bread, but this bread you eat and you do not die. And that God is doing something new because, yes, David refused to profit off the risk of his lives, of the lives of his men. And God is inviting us to profit off the risk of Jesus's life. And so in both ways, Jesus becomes what fills us up. Jesus becomes the flesh, the bread that we need to be filled. And it is through Jesus's blood, Jesus's risk, that we actually are able to get back into oneness and wholeness with God. We are to profit off of the risk that Jesus puts himself into. Okay, so, <laughs> any questions? <laughs> Bef- while you formulate a question, this is some obvious uh, ramifications, especially for Episcopalians who kind of anchor our identity around the Eucharist. So the natural question here is, okay, we are getting the flesh and blood language, so now let's talk about what we actually do in our worship services at the Eucharist. It's important for us to understand that for John, now we're not talking about every Christian theologian ever, the way John writes this story, the eating flesh and drinking blood bit is meant to provide the wholeness and the completeness that we need in our human condition in order to be fully reconciled with God, in order to get what Jesus says in John is eternal life. That kind of idea has become manifest in different denominations for many different reasons. What is critical for us, though, 
is to understand that for John, and certainly for St. Paul, there is a very real physical call to eat and drink together. This is not meant to be some nice idea that we remember, and it's actually not meant to be representative as a remembrance. Instead, the eating and the drinking is, for John, for Paul, and for others, critically important that it is physical. If we are not physically eating and drinking, we are actually missing what Jesus is calling us into. Now, we've done the difference between transubstantiation and consubstantiation and other stuff in here before. I'm happy to say that again if anyone wants to hear it again. But we, as Anglican Christians, do not subscribe to transubstantiation. And we do not subscribe to a remembrance. What we do is something relatively unique in Christianity and believe that the bread and the wine feed us as literal flesh and blood because of our faithfulness. And so Jesus is really present physically in us when we celebrate the Eucharist because of our faithfulness. That is a challenging idea, I get. And it may not be the way that everyone was taught as an Episcopalian, but that is the most common understanding of the way the Eucharist functions for us within the Episcopal Church. As I mentioned at the very beginning, John does not have a Last Supper story. There is no Last Supper story in John because for him, the point is not the story itself. The point is the theological foundations of what Jesus is actually doing with the bread and the wine at the Last Supper. So when we get to that point in John's Gospel, because obviously John's Gospel goes through the whole big story, when we get to that passion narrative that includes Holy Thursday and the Last Supper, we'll see that there is no actual dinner. John kind of glosses over the dinner and goes more deeply into what the dinner means. It's in John where we get the washing of the feet and all that sort of stuff, because for him, there is this divine reality that goes deeper than the other things that we've already learned in the other Gospels. All right, questions? Yes. Do this in remembrance of me? Yes. Does not come from the Gospel of John. Yeah. So, remember, um, Bible study is helpful for us because most of us learn the story of Christianity by people telling us the stories. And by people telling us the stories, it could have been a parent, it could have been a teacher, it could have been just by being in worship and hearing words like, do this in remembrance of me. In all of those ways, I shouldn't say in all those ways, most of us did not learn those stories by reading a single gospel. What we learned was a collection and balance and merging of all the gospels. Take a little from this, a little from that, and a little from that, and we kind of put it all together and we get more, the way that I often describe it is a bit more of a three-dimensional picture of that moment, of that story. 
This is most easily understood in our Christmas pageants. You know, when you do a nativity pageant or a Christmas pageant, you're seeing a total combo, a mishmash between Matthew and Luke. Matthew and Luke's stories are completely different. With the exception of Bethlehem, I mean, everything is different. Oh, well, I guess Mary and Joseph, they're the same. But that's about it. And so if we were to, yes, and Jesus. Um, so if we were to tell the story of Jesus' nativity, we would tell the story that we've always seen. It's in every crush, it's in every pageant, it's all that. It is not one or the other, it's both. And so in the same way, when we celebrate the Eucharist, those words, phrases, lines that we are very familiar with, it's all the Gospels merged. It's kind of the, the best of, it's the highlight reel of the Gospel stories at the Last Supper. Other questions? And is that merging a, a good thing? Is the merging a good thing? I would say, on the whole, yes. I do think it's helpful for us to do what we're doing so that we understand, not only do we understand what John's gospel tells us, what's the point of John's gospel, but we also understand that John's gospel came after the other three in the Bible because I have found it incredibly helpful as an adult to understand the progressive nature of the way the first century followers of Jesus understood what he was trying to do. When you read Mark as the first, and then you read Matthew and Luke as second, and then you read John as third, it is a direct line in development about what Jesus really meant and what he came to do. I have always thought it would be it would have been so great to have had another or another. You know, it would have been great to have like six or eight that would have continued on. Instead, what we have are church councils. And so, in a sense, church councils took the next step. We had narrative steps. Actually, we kind of had, before we had narrative steps, we had letters. So all the epistles come before the gospels. And then you've got these narrative steps from Mark to John. And then you've got councils that took up very specific theological ideas. By putting all those things together in a linear way, you see this arc and this attempt to make what is complicated a bit clearer. Obviously, at every decision point, people may not agree. And so can you disagree together or do you have to agree separately? As Anglican Christians, we have always tried to disagree together. That's the best of what we do because not any one of us gets it all right. And if we can start with humility, then we hold together and we're all better because we're together. So in that way, I kind of like the merger because in a sense, it's better together. But I think if we are not aware of the way in which people merge, we can't perhaps get any deeper than whatever we're taught. 
And so I do think that it's helpful for us to become a bit more literate in the differences so we can see the art. A good example of this is, let's go back to nativity stories. Did, one question that we had here earlier a few weeks ago was, um, did John and Jesus know each other? Well, if you take Luke's story of Jesus's birth, sure they did. Of course they did. If you take Matthew's story of Jesus's birth, well, maybe not. Because in Matthew, they go to Egypt. And they go to Egypt for a while. In Luke's story, they never go to Egypt. And so certainly they would have kind of played together and grown up together. It's important to know, like, why would Matthew's story have been so radically different than Luke's? Or vice versa. Why did they tell the stories they told? And it's important to go beneath the literal details. It's not a right or wrong. It's what's the point of the story. So for Matthew, the point of the story is Jesus is the new Moses. That's the point. Matthew is not concerned about Egypt beyond Egypt as the icon of Moses taking the people out of Egypt. Jesus takes the people out of Egypt. That's what Matthew's doing. Luke's doing something totally different. Luke has this pastoral way of telling the story that he continues all the way through the parables. And so I think I like having them all separate and together. I've equated the Gospels um, before to, if you asked four different people in your life to tell your story, what they think of you, how they know you, the stories would all be totally different because all of these people who love you and who've known you for a long time, whether it's a child, a friend, a spouse, a parent, or whatever, all of their stories are true, but they're definitely not the same. But you become so much more complex if you were to take all four of those stories and merge them than if you just take one as if it were the full truth. It's nice to hear one line, but then, did any of you ever read Faulkner? I mean, Faulkner was like something that y'all read, right? I love Faulkner. And I was the only person in my high school who loved Faulkner. And, <laughs> but I can remember, one of the things I loved about the way that he would tell some of his stories is you would get one whole chapter from one character, and then you'd shift, and the next chapter would be from a the same story, but from a different character's perspective. I was fascinated by that kind of storytelling. You rarely saw that before him, where you would take one event and you would tell it from multiple different angles. Fascinating. And that's how I think the Gospels are. That was a much longer answer than you needed. And like that, it's 1130. Um, so, we're going to clean up with the division of Jesus' followers in two weeks, because it really is interesting to look at the way in which the people back then responded to Jesus. Because we kind of think to ourselves, man, if Jesus were just here today, everything would be okay. We would follow him, we would do the things he said, we would all the other stuff. Not a chance. If Jesus came in this room and said this kind of stuff in our modern sensibilities, we would all, not only would we think he was crazy, but we would certainly not do anything that he said. And so we see that at the very end of chapter six, and then we'll jump into chapter seven. I hope you all have a wonderful Thanksgiving holiday, and we'll see you in two weeks. <laughs>